good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm pleased to be seated. And a very good morning as well to those who are joining us online. Uh, can I ask you to have open uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, uh, either in your Bibles or on your device or the order of service. Uh, be good to have that uh, in front of you. Philippians 3, 1 to 11, uh, continuing our series through the book of Philippians. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word has been read. We pray now that as we come to consider this passage, uh, that your Spirit will work in our hearts, uh, that he will point us to Jesus, uh, that we will see the surpassing value of knowing him, uh, and that we will always cling to him above all things. Uh, so we commit this time to you. Please help me to preach rightly and faithfully and in your spirit's power. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an old joke that goes like this. What does a preacher mean when he says, finally? The answer? Absolutely nothing. Finally. So far in Paul's letter to the Philippians... Uh, he has been grateful for their partnership. He's, he's been concerned for their unity, for their perseverance. Uh, he has shown a good model of this by exposing his own gospel priorities. He has urged them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. He's highlighted the example of gospel workers that were known to them. And most of all, he has pointed them to Christ, clothed in his gospel, and called upon them to follow his example of humility. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul comes to the next section of his letter, and in our translation, it begins with the word, finally. And you might think it's strange that Paul says, finally, when he's only halfway through his letter. Uh, but actually, the Greek word translated, finally, can also be, so then, or well then, or can just mark the start of the next section. So that's, that's probably what it means here. But well, the important thing here in chapter 3, verse 1, is how Paul commands the Philippian Christians and the Holy Spirit commands us to, what does it say? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, notice he's not just saying rejoice for no reason. It's not, you know, I don't see a big smile on your face today, Philippians. How about a big smile and we all be happy? No, 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 no. What Paul wants the Philippians to do is rejoice in the Lord. He wants them to find joy in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is what the Holy Spirit wants for us as well. He wants Jesus to be the one in whom we delight. He wants Jesus to be the focus of our thanksgiving and praise. He wants Jesus to be the source of our joy. He wants Jesus to be the one we value most in our lives. He wants us to rejoice in Him and therefore prize Him above everything else. But there was a danger, a peril that the Philippian church would soon face that could threaten to rob them of their joy in Christ. Probably wasn't there yet, but it was infecting other churches that Paul planted. And so Paul wants to warn them about this. It's something he's warned them about before. He's willing to do it again and again. He says in the second half of verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. 
And this threat that he's warning them about comes from a group of people we call Judaizers. You might remember that we met the Judaizers last year when we were studying the book of Galatians. Because the Judaizers would have come to the churches that Paul founded and said something like this. You know that guy Paul that told you the gospel? He told you that you need to believe in Christ in order to be saved? He said if you trust him as your savior and lord, you'd be right with God? Well, what he says is kind of true, but he hasn't told you the whole story. You know that he preaches from the Hebrew scriptures? Well, the Hebrew scriptures teach us to follow the law God gave Moses. And you cannot hope to be saved unless you keep the law. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. We agree with Paul there. Jesus is, though, the Jewish Messiah. And if you want to follow him as your Messiah, you need to be part of the Jewish people. And the sign of being part of the Jewish people is the circumcision. So if you want to be saved, trusting in Jesus is not enough. You need also to be circumcised and then to go on and keep the law of Moses. Okay? So, let's organize to put things right in the church. We'll go back to basics. To start off, we'll organize some circumcisions to make sure that you're all properly Jewish so you can be properly Christian. Sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it? What does Paul say in verse 2? Look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Dogs is what the Jews call the Gentiles. And mutilating the flesh in the Old Testament was a pagan practice that's forbidden, but now he calls their circumcision this mutilating the flesh. Why is he so strong, so angry when it comes to these people? Well, the answer is they're distorting the gospel, making it into a false gospel. And a false gospel cannot save. And not only does it not save, but it drives away people who could otherwise would have believed the true gospel and been saved. Because you see, when you add to the gospel, you change it and you destroy it. They were saying that trusting Jesus was not enough to be saved. His work is not enough. Got to do this other thing as well. In that case, in their case, it was circumcision. We call that gospel plus. Gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, plus circumcision and obeying the Old Testament law actually gets you no gospel at all. Because if you add to the gospel, you're actually taking away from it. And the moment you say something else other than faith in Christ is necessary for salvation, you've made it contingent on your own work. To have faith in Christ means to trust him alone to save you. Salvation comes as a gift from God for those who will trust in Jesus. You try to add to this gift, you rob it of its power because it's no longer a gift. If you add circumcision as a requirement to salvation, you're contributing to your salvation by what you do. You're saying the death of Jesus received by faith is not enough to take away your sins. You've got to do your bit as well. And that is a false gospel that cannot save. And it is very serious. Furthermore, you add to the work of Christ. 
And when you add to the work of Christ, you diminish the work of Christ. You rob Christ of his glory. No longer Christ and him alone who people rely on for salvation. And salvation becomes something you work for rather than give thanks for and work out. And you lose your full appreciation of Christ. And if we do not appreciate the totality of the salvation that is won for us in Christ, then we will not rejoice in him. We'll rejoice in something else. It's only when we know that Jesus has done everything for us. It's only when we're really relying on him. It's only when we appreciate his finished work on our behalf that the focus of our joy comes to rest on him. Uh, friends, there are not many people today who teach we have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Where do we see this gospel plus rearing its, its ugly head today? Well, I've met people here, not in this church, but I've met people who say, you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching against tongues as a gift from God. But if you make it a requirement for salvation, that is gospel plus. I've met people who say you have to be baptized in a certain way in order to be saved. Trusting Jesus is not enough. You have to be baptized as well by full immersion in our particular church. Gospel triple plus. But there are lots of things we could add to the gospel to be saved, couldn't we? Baptism, confirmation, listening to sermons, the Eucharist, coming to church each week, daily quiet times, growth groups, expository preaching, Bible study courses, going to church camp, whatever. All good things. And all things I want to encourage every one of them in our community. But they are not prerequisites for salvation in and of themselves. Salvation comes by trusting in the Christ who died for you as your Savior and Lord. And if we add to this, we are adding to the gospel and taking away from it and destroying it. These Judaizers were claiming to be the ones to preserve the old Jewish religion. But Paul sees things differently. Because true Old Testament religion finds its fulfillment not in these Judaizers, but in Christ and his people. It's the Christians, that Paul says, who are the circumcision, not the Jews. Verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the covenant people of God. We are the ones who worship God by the Spirit with all of our lives, not in the ceremonies of the temple. We put our trust fully and wholly and solely in Jesus. We glory in Him, Paul says. He's the one we boast about. He's our pride and our joy. That is the true circumcision. 
But it's not the way that Paul always saw things. In the past, he found his assurance elsewhere. In fact, he treasured those very things that the Judaizers were now championing. He says in verse 4 to 6, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he's got confidence in the, reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's got the right pedigree, done the right actions. Everything um, as far as Judaism is concerned. He would have made those Judaizers proud. But now he's got a new perspective. He sees things completely differently. Verse 7 he says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. All this thing was so gain, he considers it loss. I heard a story many years ago about a very successful partner in a big four accounting firm who had a peculiar habit. Uh, this is way before the time when computers were used to, to uh, key in the accounts. Those days they kept the books by hand. And every morning this guy would go to his desk, open a locked drawer, look inside, lock the drawer again, and then start his work auditing the books. And his subordinates suspected that he hid the secrets of his success in that drawer. They waited for the opportunity. One day when the partner had gone out of the city, the juniors just decided to try and work out what made him such a great auditor. Broke into the drawer, breathlessly looked inside. There's one small piece of paper. They pick it up and read it. This is what it said. Left is debit, right is credit. Friends, when the Apostle Paul was following first century Judaism, when he put his trust and confidence in the flesh and all the things he had achieved, he had his debits and credits the wrong way around. What he thought were assets were actually liabilities. You see, he thought all those religious accomplishments would make him acceptable to God. But in reality, there were simply things that gave him a false confidence in the flesh and therefore blinded him to his desperate need for the true righteousness that comes from God. And you see, friends, being religious and moral is actually dangerous because you think you're okay because of that. We make the mistake of thinking that a good Jew or a good Christian or a good Muslim or a good Hindu or a good Buddhist or a good atheist even is good. But we're not. We're all rebels against God. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus' death to cover us. But religion, any religion, is dangerous because it lulls people into a false sense of security without him. And Paul's come to realize that his whole life in Judaism, all his great achievements, were actually a waste. And now he's changed his mind. He considers them not a prophet, but a loss. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Jesus 
is the most valuable thing in the world. Let me say it again. Knowing Jesus as your Lord is the most valuable thing in the world. If you have everything in the world on one side of the ledger, and you have knowing Christ as Lord on the other, Paul says, Christ by far outweighs it all. There's no competition. Compared to knowing Christ, it is all worthless. In fact, it's rubbish. It's of no comparative value. It's not worth rejoicing in all those things. And so for the sake of Christ, Paul was willing to give up everything. And he did. The end of verse 8. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Left his whole life of Judaism and all his achievements and all his stature and all he had behind to follow Jesus. Because knowing Christ is far, 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 far more valuable than anything else. So what are the benefits of knowing Christ? What happens when we gain him that makes him so desirable? Why is Paul willing to lose everything that he once held dear in order to have him? Well, there are three things Paul mentions here. The first is about being judicially given the righteousness of Christ, or to use the theological term, justification. The second is about being changed into the likeness of Christ in our character, or to use the theological term, progressive sanctification. And the third is about being resurrected at the end of the age to glory. And to use the theological term is glorification. Justification, progressive sanctification, glorification. Now, first of all, knowing Christ as Lord means that you receive the righteousness of Christ. Right? Paul, at the end of verse 8, is willing to, to suffer the loss of all his religious achievements and to count them as rubbish in order he may gain Christ, and, and verse 9, so that he can be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, from God, that depends on faith. You see, one day God is going to judge the world. And on that day, Paul wants to be found in Christ. And friends, so do we, right? When we have faith in Christ, we're united with him. And because we are one, he shares our sin, we share his righteousness, but he paid for our sin on the cross. So it's not counted against us anymore. And so what is left for us is to share in his righteousness. Which is why God, the perfect judge, can declare us righteous on the last day, even though in practice we are, we are sinners. And when God declares us righteousness, declares us righteous, right, the technical term for that is justification. And since we only get that when we have faith in Christ, it's called justification by faith. Paul says, I don't want to have a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. Because that would be terribly inadequate. Wouldn't be good enough for God because in spite of the admiration of all these people, actually I, I can't keep the law adequately. You know, a few weeks ago, 
after we finished the Ten Commandments series, talking to someone on the porch over there. And he said to me, you know, after having heard all those Ten Commandments being preached, I realized that I have a hope of getting to heaven. I said, yeah, that's exactly the point. That's the point. Unless you're perfect, a righteousness that comes from the law is, is no righteousness at all. We can't get right with God by keeping the law. Instead, Paul says, I want that righteousness at the end of verse 9 that depends on faith. And that righteousness, halfway through verse 9, comes through faith in Christ Jesus, or you could translate it through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, which is probably better because it already said in the end of the verse that it depends on faith. Either way, on the day of judgment, God wants, Paul wants God to look on him and see the righteousness of Christ. And so do we. We want God to look at the perfect life of Jesus, who lived that life that we could never live and died our death in our place. We want to be saved in the end, not based on our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. We want to be found in him. And that is the only way to be saved on the last day. That, friends, is the first benefit of knowing Christ. We have his righteousness. And that in itself is more valuable than anything in the world. The second reason why knowing Christ is so valuable that Paul is willing to lose everything for it is because knowing Christ in verse 10 means knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering. Now we're not talking about our resurrection at the end of the age here. This resurrection power, we, we actually know here and now. Right? God raised Jesus from the dead. That took incredible power. And knowing Jesus actually means knowing that resurrection power in our lives. Because once we were dead from sin, we were cut off from God. But by God's power, he raised us from the death of sin and made us alive in Christ. We have spiritual life. We have relationship with God now and eternal life with him forever. And we have that life because God's resurrection power is at work in us. And that same power that has raised us from spiritual death to life in Christ is also changing us to be like Christ. For when we know God's resurrection power, we also share or partner, it's a partnership word again, or fellowship in Christ's sufferings. The fact that God's people suffer doesn't mean God has forgotten us. Right? If you're going through suffering, it doesn't mean God's forgotten you. It's part of our partnership, our fellowship, our sharing in Christ, in what Christ has faced before. But it's not just suffering in itself that's valuable. There's much suffering in this world that is wasted because we just get angry or we just turn inwards or we turn away from God instead of, instead of seeing suffering as a means of fellowshipping in Christ. Suffering becomes sharing in Christ's sufferings when at the end of verse 10, it involves becoming like him in his death. That is, 
when suffering, when we use suffering to develop the character and attitudes and virtues that Jesus showed in the way that he died. The shape of his death, that sacrificial, loving, humble, faithful, non-retaliatory death, that's the shape our lives should take in the midst of suffering. Sometimes when we face persecution or suffering, we're tempted to be bitter. Let's remember, we are partners in sharing the suffering of Christ. See that as an opportunity to respond in a Christ-like way, to be conformed to his death, to show his character in the way we respond. And so suffering then becomes a means of us becoming more like Christ. And so the second benefit of knowing Christ, the experience is resurrection power, going from spiritual death to spiritual life, and then becoming like him in character through suffering. And that is more valuable than anything this world can offer. The third thing about knowing Christ is more valuable than anything else is in verse 11. Now he is talking about the resurrection at the end. Our translations put it that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now Paul doesn't, Paul's not saying he's not sure if it's possible for him to be resurrected or not. Right? Uh, he believes, he knows about resurrection. It's pretty clear from the rest of Philippians, right? He's already expressed confidence in chapter 1 that when he dies, he'll be with Christ. He's just said that he wants to be found on the judgment day in, in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own. Uh, in verse 20 and 21, he's, gonna, he's looking forward to the time when, when Jesus will transform our body, mortal bodies to be like his heavenly body. He's not doubting it here. But what he's saying is he doesn't know the root he doesn't know the way he will take to the resurrection. He doesn't know if he's going to be martyred beforehand or if he's going to go keep on preaching and teaching for a long time and then die of disease or, or and then be raised. He doesn't know if Jesus will come back while he's still alive and he'll have a different kind of resurrection, more transformation. The route that Paul takes to getting from here to the resurrection, not certain. The fact of the resurrection, sure. Jesus, Paul is a partner with Christ in his death. Facts there. But the route, not sure but that doesn't matter. Somehow or other, we'll get there. And if you and I are in Christ, then we too are partners with him in his death. And we know that Jesus will raise his partners in the end. And friends, the resurrection of the dead, that is also more valuable than anything else. Because it means life with God in his kingdom forever. Enjoying Christ and his glory. Everything else is rubbish by comparison. So that also is worth giving up everything for. Brothers and sisters, all wants the Philippians, God wants us to rejoice in the Lord. Our joy our confidence, our boast, our hope is meant to come from who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's a gospel-centered joy. We must never place our hopes and confidence and our joy in what we can do and what we can achieve, but only in Christ. 
God counts us as righteous in Christ so we can be confident on the day of judgment. We have new life in Christ through his resurrection power. We are being changed through suffering to being like Christ as we share in suffering with him. And whatever the path between now and then, one day, we'll be raised from the dead to be in glory with Christ. Christ is more precious than anything, anything else in the world. If you don't have Christ, then come to him, whatever the cost. He's worth giving up everything for. And if you are in Christ, don't you ever forget the value of that. Don't you ever take it for granted. Don't you ever wander away from him. Don't you ever forget his benefits. Every day of your life, remember that you're a sinner, but God accepts you by giving you the righteousness of Christ. Keep coming back to him. Keep being thankful to Christ day by day. Keep gathering with God's people week by week. to Remind each other how good it is to belong to Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Value Jesus above everything else. And don't let anyone or anything rob you of that joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessed assurance we have because we have Christ. Thank you that you have given us his righteousness, not our own, for the day of judgment. Thank you that we have his resurrection power working in us now to give us new life. Thank you that we can share in his sufferings and become like him through them. And that in the end, whatever the path, we will be raised in glory. Thank you that all this is because of Christ. His perfect life. His sacrificial death. His glorious resurrection for us. Guard us, we pray, in Christ. Keep us, we pray, from the influence of those who would distract us from Christ. Help us never to exchange Christ for anything or anyone else, no matter how attractive it might seem. Give us eyes that see the value of knowing Jesus and hearts that really treasure him above all things. We ask this in his name. Amen.